The Homance Chronicles. The female equivalent of a bromance. So many poor choices. But so many good takes. But so many poor choices. <laughs> I, uh, well, that's backwards. Hey, this is The Homance Chronicles, and I'm Sarah. Welcome. <laughs> so the chair armrest that I have is, it fell off in my haste to get down here. <laughs> then I just put it back and it's backwards. Oh, well. Keeps my arm up. That's all I care about, right? Been watching so many period pieces that, I, like, I don't commonly hear people say haste, but in those shows, it's like, make haste. <laughs> Did I say haste? <laughs> That in my haste to get down here. And I'm like, did she just come out of like 1800s British? In all fairness, in all fairness, I did just do a bunch of research. (laughs) Uh, But there's no haste in there. It wasn't in there. It's just, I don't know, maybe by osmosis. Goodness. I know. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So we're here. We made it. We're doing another ho of history. I hope everybody's ready for this one. I, I'm I'm as ready as I can be. I don't know who you chose. I so know. I'm waiting. It's an element of surprise. Impatiently. Well, today we're going to be talking about Josephine Butler. Not to be confused, Josephine Baker. Yeah, Her, Josephine uh, was a popular name. That and Mary. We have like 700 Marys on the right. list. <laughs> right. So uh, Josephine, whose uh, maiden name was Gray, she's kind of not our typical hoe in terms of her family life. The patterns are not there, um, but kind of similar to your um, hoe of history a couple weeks back, Mary, who did the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Josephine Butler was active. <laughs> From April 13th, 1829 to December 30th, 1906. So she had a pretty good run. Um, One blurb that I'm going to give you guys before we jump in. uh, One of her things she's well known for is campaigning for improving the conditions of prostitutes. Now, I'm just going to say it right now. I don't use the word prostitute. I use sex worker, but for the sake of this story, I'm going to be using the word prostitute a lot because that's how they spoke. So I'm sorry if I offend you deal with it. You don't care. Or if you care too that much, turn it off. Love you. Bye. (laughs) So, um, she campaigned for improving the conditions of prostitutes. Butler fought child prostitution with the help of the campaigning editor from the Paul Mall Gazette, which are, you know, I don't know, Paul Mall's the smokes, you know? Well, if you're talking about children, that's sex trafficking. It is now. Yes. But not sex work. So I, I don't know. Well, we're going to get into the nuances of that all. all in okay. Here, all up in this okay. business. <laughs> you know, the age of consent is a huge thing, apparently. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So, um, the reason Mr. William Thomas Steed was interested in helping her, he actually purchased a 13-year-old girl from the girl's mother for $5 euros. So, it was a thing. Mm-hmm. So, just, just keep that in your little back pockets. Now, I'm like, wait, is this slave ownership? Because... Uh that's crossing some lines (laughs) crossing some lines we'll get into it sold the whole person yep a whole well it could have been her person or the time but she was purchased for five euros i don't know semantics are maybe lost in translation a little bit okay so miss josephine she had a mom and a dad hannah and john gray mom she was the religious side of the house. Dad was very politics. He was actually the cousin of the British prime minister at the time, Lord Grey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was the fourth daughter and seventh child. So 
lots of ha- lots of people happening in this household. So uh, the dad, I'm going to get a little to a little bit of what the dad did because it's important for where she ended up going. So in 1833, he was actually appointed the manager of the Greenwich Hospital States. So the family moved to that area, which is um, called Northumberland. Difficult for me. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. So (laughs) what country? The UK. They're in England. Um, So he, he moved them to the area. He actually was uh, appointed to and acted as Lord Grey's chief political agent in that area. He very much supported Catholic emancipation. So if you guys remember the Catholic Catholicism and Christianity were like butting heads and um, Christianity was kind of winning in this area of the country at the time. He also supported the abolition or uh, abolition, abolition, abolishment of slavery i think i just had a little stroke i'm gonna be okay though (laughs) are you smelling toast (laughs) yes no (laughs) i'm stuffy i can't tell you for sure (laughs) oh boy um he also supported the repeal of corn laws which was a very restrictive grain taxation made so that you know the upper echelon could eat a well-balanced meal that included grains, corn, anything that was used to make bread, cereals, etc. And the reform of the poor laws, which were coded in the 15 fucking hundreds. So it was time. We all, I'm pretty sure, can gleam what they were about. So he mm-hmm. was instrumental in progressing those as well. Um, so home life, dad actually treated all of his kids, which I don't know for sure how many he had. But he treated them all equally. So it was not like, hey, boys over girls. Hey, everybody does the, you know, social chores. Like everybody was treated equally. He educated them on the politics that were happening, social issues, and even exposed them to the very politically and very important visitors he had when they were in the area because, you know, he was a chief political Mm -hmm. human. So like I said earlier, mom's religious thing is what she came in what she brought to the table so uh she was at that at from that she became very uh well-rounded in terms of her political beliefs and standing but also she was a very she had a lot of um she was very rooted in her religion so (laughs) her family was this is when the lines of church and state were still under one king yeah there was no separation so fucked up Mm-hmm. Oh, but it's not any different here. Let's be honest. It's just a little f- removed. Anyway, all this to say <laughs> that she came from a very well-to-do family that was very politically progressive. And so that meant that she was homeschooled <laughs> before she was, a, she attended a boarding school in Newcastle for two years. So Around age 17 is where she became very disenchanted with her religious beliefs. And that was because she was what I assumed to be riding a horse. She was, they said she was out riding. So that's my assumption. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she found a dead body that had been, they completed suicide. Oh, well, sugar, do we sugar. know that? I mean, yeah, it was, yeah. It was oh, a couple was it like hanging from a tree or something? I have to believe there was something that indicated it was a little bit of a take myself out situation. Um, and then she had a, an awakening? And it just shook her to her fucking core. Like she didn't know how to act about Jesus and God and everything else afterwards. Um, and so it totally was the turn that I was not. I thought you were going to say she was like fell off the horse. No, I was no. waiting for you to be like, she fell off the horse and had a head injury. Nope. <laughs> She found a dead body. <laughs> now, remember, she came from a very affluent family. So for her to actually encounter this real life situation blew her head like com- completely off. Basically, it just sugar to her core, like I said. So um, I'm going to be quoting here and there from all the sources I've pulled from. Thank you, Wikipedia and whoever else I'll name later. Um then she decided she would be speaking directly to God because um, 
an honest man in the pulpit who taught us loyalty, all that he probably himself knew about God, but whose words don't even touch the fringes of my soul's deep discontent. To her core. <laughs> mm-hmm. I just was watching Charlotte, a Bridgerton story. And it's like a prequel. Is that what they're called? Yeah. When like you go back to the beginning. Anyway. Yeah, prequel. Um <laughs> young version of Queen Charlotte says at one point, I am seven and 10 years old or something. So like when you said 17, like flashed me back. I'm like, that's how they that's how they talked about age. Like you have to do the math on like she was like, I am seven and ten years old. The disrespect, but maybe that's a way of showing I can do math, bitches. Like stuck with me. So then you're like talking about this lady who's 17 at the time and I'm like no she was seven and ten years <laughs> we should just go right into that so she wasn't she was in her mid 10 and 10 years <laughs> <laughs> she was actually in her mid-20s uh, in 1847 she went to visit her brother in Ireland during the height of the great famine and as you know Europe or uh, the UK sorry England had control of everybody over there back then so Uh, She really came into contact again with a lot of what she had heard about, had never really seen. Um, And she was exposed to widespread suffering in like the poor communities. And it hit her hard and it left her very, left a very big impression on her as a whole. So by 1850, she and George Butler, a fellow Exeter uh, from the College of Oxford, she met him through like attending balls that the county mm-hmm. would put on mm-hmm. and they became an item. He would pen her handwritten poems, you know, cause that's all they had back then. They got engaged in 1851 and they didn't get married until 1852. So it was a very healthy relationship for the most part. There wasn't toxicity in there. Um, it was very much like from what I read, it was very much, they were in love. They were very supportive of each other. They had a lot of the same um, ideologies, beliefs, and um, really went well together. So as they settled in Oxford, he was a scholar, a cleric, and shared a lot of commitment with her liberal reforms. They also loved the Italian culture, which I think is a weird (laughs) add-in. They're very against Catholicism, yet they loved the Italians. But it was the culture. Well, I mean, culture. I'm like, all their artwork, people are naked. Yeah, I get it. The food. Right? I mean, what's there not to love about? The fact that they don't have stores open all the time. I don't know. <laughs> like, I mean, about Italian culture. I know. Not, not how they live. No, that's the culture, though. They don't, they don't work. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh they were also very committed to their christian beliefs and they would pray together which i find to be interesting considering the fact that she was not interested in you know having a a mouthpiece to god she wanted to speak to him herself so they shared that they had two children by 1854 um but later on she actually describes her memories of oxford's to be like very closeted and misogynistic in the community they very much lacked a family life Uh, She was often the only female at any of the social gatherings, and she would actually end up having to endure, listen in anger, if you will, the open acceptance of the double standard by the gentlemen of the university. Basically, they were all being pigs. Um, Mm -hmm. In 1853, there was a novel, a novel, a novel published called Ruth, in which the heroine or the main character was seduced by a man with money, and then he basically drops her right afterwards. She was just appalled. Uh, She saw that the male conversationalists considered it natural that a moral lapse in a woman was spoken of as immensely worse thing than in a man. So like basically saying the guy's not at fault. 
this is the woman's fault. She should have known better. It's nothing to do with the man. So in response to this community that she found just to be appalling, her and her husband began to help many of the, what they called fallen women of the Oxford community, and even invited them to live in her home with her and her two children and her husband. So quick background, women at the time who are sex workers would have venereal diseases, obviously, because that's what happens when you have unprotected sex in the 1800s. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there was a lot of conversation about morals in that time. And a lot of the times women were seen as the problem, obviously. Mm-hmm. Just had to make that very clear. Them and their dirty vaginas. How dare they? We. How dare we? <laughs> um, so actually ended up one case they had gotten involved with a young lady who was actually serving prison time she had been seduced by a university don and then he abandoned her so she decided to murder her baby i'm using that in quotes in despair what that means i don't know i don't know what the whole situation is if murder meant she was she had an abortion or she had the full baby and then released him of his time here i don't know either way they were able to convince the governor of newgate to arrange for her to stay in their house until the end of her sentencing i'm confounded interesting i'm just wondering what the argument was for allowing a baby killer right. out of jail versus right. somebody else who has a lesser crime. Right. And I think that at that time, they would see kind of women over children just because they may not last. This woman's a full adult. So we're going to protect her and her mental illness because we don't know if this child's going to make it. This is my lens. This is me inferring being who I am. I don't know if that's true or not, but. I don't think society saw children to be as important as they do now. I say that for reasons. Well, I mean, they used to lose a lot more children mm-hmm. through the birthing process, disease, yeah. famine, etc. So then they just keep making more. <laughs> right. So that's where I'm like, I don't think children are as cherished as they are now because <laughs> there's like you could just make another one i feel like that was the mindset right so in 56 she actually started suffering just because oxford is a damp place um, and she had a lesion on her lung so her and the family went to live in a house uh in clifton near bristol they had another son at the time and george then became the vice president of the or vice principal of the chetland college chetlandham Shutting on. They moved into a local house. <laughs> um, they moved into a local house and bedded themselves in the community. Unfortunately, though, they were very pro-union. Uh, during the American Civil War, they were pro-union. So, like, yeah, go go north in America. Um, but that actually led to civil or social ostracism. So, like, her community was just not interested in her supporting the the North and America. Like, slavery, how dare you take our pleasantries away? Um, and so she actually described the social isolation as it was often painful, but the discipline was useful. So my opinion is that she was brooding at that point and just, just writing away, writing her life away. <laughs> um, in May of 59, they had their fourth and final daughter. She was their only daughter. And unfortunately, in August of 19, or 1864, she bailed out over a, a railing that was 40 feet high inside the home. She landed on the stone floor and ended up passing three hours later. Eventually, it was deemed an accident, but Josephine shut down and didn't speak of it for 30 years. She didn't say a fucking thing to anybody about it. Ugh, awful. So in 
um, October of 1864, just a few months later, one of her sons contracted diphtheria, diphtheria, D-I-P-H-T-H, diphtheria. How do we say this? I don't think it's that important because I don't think anybody listening is going to know either. All right. Well, uh, she was still Evie or Eving her. She was still grieving her daughter, Eva, is what they called her at the time. Um, she was very much in poor health and she was suffering from depression. Um, after the worst of the worst of Stanley's ailment, one of her sons passed, she decided to take him to a trip to Naples um, so they could rest and recuperate. They ended up getting on a ship that traveled down like the west coast of Italy through the very rough weather. And she ended up having a physical breakdown on board and she nearly died from it. So the weather triggered her and she was like ballistic. And so a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. Okay. You said a physical breakdown. And so <laughs> I was like, no, it said physical breakdown. She physically broke down. She had a nervous breakdown, but she physically was throwing a tant. Like she couldn't, she physically was thrashing okay. and, you know, whatever. So like, mm. yeah, no, it's okay. physical, mental, obviously, but physically she was reacting she lost control <laughs> literally yes. okay um so then back coming to january 8 of 1866 her husband george was appointed the headmaster of liverpool college and the family moved into like the what they call the dingle area <laughs> um although they had a new home and it was the home that eva the daughter hadn't passed away in uh, she was still very much mourning her daughter, which understandably, so she decided to focus her feelings and energy on helping others. She later wrote, she became possessed with an irresistible urge to go forth and find some pain keener than my own to meet with people more unhappy than myself. It was not difficult to find misery in Liverpool. That's a sad statement. However, advantageous, like you go girl. <laughs> Oh my God. Is that where the saying misery loves company comes from? I, I could question. I don't know. <laughs> Liverpool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So eventually in Liverpool, they started to open their home to sex workers who were in the terminal stages of venereal diseases. Again, STDs were rampant and women had no course of action they had no way to go get Mm. checked or be taken care of things either had to run their course or kill them it's fucked up so it was what a painful could you imagine symptoms to have for forever dying of gonorrhea you have the clap forever i mean at a certain point i'd probably rather die than have a burning pee hole exactly i would just take me out somebody take the wheel i'm done i'm out bye you could just take that half it's too if i can survive nah fuck it just take all of it i don't want it anymore it's all right (laughs) (laughs) so god there was an influx of sex workers with varying stages of terminal venereal disease and it was very obvious that they were going to need more space so she actually ended up setting up her first hostel with funds from local men of means i don't know what that means but i'm glad that she was able to fund it through something public um local men with means yeah so i wonder if it's maybe like a guy a group of very rich men who just give their money to philanthropic needs whatever it wasn't highlighted i'm 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 sensing that there was a cover-up of sorts and um yeah there was a slight manipulation in how she acquired said yeah. funds uh-huh yeah yep i'm <laughs> curious too so but she seemed to be very by the book also so it could be that she had you know political connections whatever her maybe um her dad's name held weight i don't know but either way she was able to set it up through a local funding um so remember that was in 66 by easter of 67 she actually established a second larger hostel 
where there were more like appropriate things for the women to do like work setups for like sewing machine and manufacturing envelopes because that was a thing she actually ended up calling this the industrial home and this one was funded by the workhouse committee and local merchants pretty rad if you ask me <laughs> i wrote that in my notes right so well, it, it's it's a full circle <laughs> of community yeah money exactly funding it's yeah just, it's keeping it and it's cycling through mm-hmm. which is awesome yeah so in 66 she also jumps in and starts a campaign for women's rights including the right to vote and have a better education she was a signatory on the reform bill um which then the petition became law so the the reform bill was essentially or uh, the women's rights reformation they did was any woman who was married became the man's property we know this i think it might be common knowledge but everything became the man's property and if a woman wanted to get divorced she certainly had nothing to leverage for divorce so typically speaking men would take everything women would get pushed on to the streets and then they would likely have to become sex workers to support themselves full circle and we've also learned from all of our other various stories that men were not on the up and up when it came to making sure that their families were secure in case they die (laughs) or whatever the case may be no they always leave them in debt yes with a lot of kids um so (sighs) she considered the hostels to be what they call what she called a stack yet she didn't want women to just be stuck there. She wanted to continue their education so they can move forward and move on. Um, women would absolutely continue to struggle to find employment until they had been better educated. So that was her point was to make sure that they had the tools they needed to be successful in society. In 1867 with suffragette, suffragette guest, suffragist, Annie Clow, she established the North England Council for Promoting the Higher Education of Women which aimed to raise the status of the governesses and female teachers to that of, uh, of a profession. So she basically was like, women should be able to learn more, but they should also be able to teach more. So it was definitely like this whole, like hitting it from both sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, she served- And now it's like more, it's way more common to have a female. Oh yeah. Uh, teacher in K through 12, at least. I don't know mm-hmm. about professors, but right. I yeah. mean, wild. It very quickly became the woman's job to educate. Yeah. (laughs) So she actually served as a president of that uh, board or foundation until 1873. She was, like Mary, very, very much on boards, forums. She was very proactive in the community. So I'm not going to go through and list everything that she was involved in. They may come in here and there. Um, But she spent a solid 20 years of her life advocating for women and children. Um, so a, a series of lectures that uh, began under James Stewart from that group, he went out people, you know, to different areas and thought, you know, maybe we'll get 30 students to sign up 300 did. So it was very, very um, obvious that women were very much interested in becoming more educated so they could take control. From there, she published, from that point forward, she published pamphlets arguing access to higher education for women and more equal access to a wider range of jobs. Um, so there was an act <laughs> called the Contagious Diseases Act. Uh, I, If you're listening... I mean, obviously you're listening and we don't have this anywhere where you're watching. So let me rephrase. (laughs) (laughs) We paused because we both shook our head at the same time. (laughs) Like we both, like you say, contagious diseases act. And we, we just had a moment of ick. Yes. We know we got, I don't even, I don't even have to fucking tell you. I think we all know based on the trajectory of this conversation. (laughs) So before I get into that, she, um, 
petitioned the Senate of the University of Cambridge to provide exams to women. And the next year, Cambridge actually hired or created the Cambridge Higher Examination for Women. And in April of 68, she and Elizabeth Wollstoneholm, who was another big figure in the women's rights movement, became secretaries of the Married Women's Property Committee to pressure Parliament to change the marriage law where women would become, where women's, where women became property and nothing else. Oh yeah, I wrote that wrong. So women became property and nothing else. She and um, Elizabeth were able to get the law passed in 1882 for the Married Women's Property Act protecting women so that was badass okay you ready for this are you ready for this fucking disgusting contagious diseases act i think so it was a i'm gonna this is my these are my words a foul and gross misuse of power allowed police to detain women um they thought were prostitutes or sex workers in specific areas uh, without any more than an officer's word that this woman was doing something wrong. They were then taken in front of a magistrate where they could not defend themselves. If a magistrate agreed with the police officer, women were subjected to genital exams. If they were diseased, they would be held in lock hospitals until they cleared up. If they refused the exams, they'd be sent to prison and would have to do hard labor. Police officers, <laughs> units of police officers were sent to these locations so they could fucking harass women all day, every day, and just abuse their fucking rights. Wow. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, and God, I'm, that is gross. And I am pissed off about not being able to have an abortion. Holy fuck. We've come a long way, ladies. That's, that's really troubling. It's very troubling. So it's just I'm picturing <laughs> in my mind a police officer or someone of the plain law. clothed, plain clothed, oh, plain clothes. Oh, okay. certainly. Yes. So a man, I'm envisioning a man <laughs> mm-hmm. basically pointing at me and being like, yep, it's you. No basis. Come with me. No reasoning. No proof. No nothing. Just based on the fact that he felt like it that day. Mm -hmm. Or I fit whatever the image is in his mind of what a sex worker looks like. Mm -hmm. And then I'm not allowed to speak on my own behalf. No. And then... I'm violated. 100%. And if you're not allowing the violation, you're punished. You either have to struggle through this infection and die from it, or you get better, but you're still in prison doing manual labor. You don't win. No, no. This, I mean, even if you, let's say you have a venereal disease but you're not a sex worker so you end up letting them do the examination you go to a hospital where you quote unquote get better which is no, unlikely it was, a, it was a lock hospital well, well that's were, what i'm saying imprisoned like, in the hospital too it wasn't yeah. like they were like comfortable right right they're like you're walking diseases so you're not allowed out in public right. and it's unlikely you're actually going to get better. So now, no matter if it's in this hospital or if it's in jail, you are potentially living out the rest of your life mm-hmm. without control, choice, loved ones, 
hundred percent. I mean, the mind fuckery. Mm-hmm. It took me. I was. I took it. Had, I took a pause for a moment. I was like, "Oh wow, this is heavy." Okay. The mind fuckery. We're going. And in. then <laughs> let's just pretend that somebody overcomes their infection. Let's pretend that it's not a life-threatening version of the disease. And they actually do overcome what we now call an infection instead of a disease. Mm -hmm. Then they just get released out into the wild, now labeled as a sex worker, even if they weren't one. Exactly. And that was one of the biggest problems that Josephine had was the fact that women were being taken without regard and some women were not in any way, shape, or form needed to be subjected to this. They're passerbys or whatever. And then they get thrown through the system and their name is tarnished. Their family's tarnished. It ruins their lives. It's just not okay. None of it's okay. None of it's fucking okay. At the end of the day, it's not okay. And it's probably a cheating husband that gave it to him. 100%. 100%. They went to one of these brothels. <laughs> so. In 1869, she and Elizabeth, her her buddy, met in Bristol to figure out what they could do about the acts. The National Association for the Repeal of the Contagious Disease Acts was founded in October, but it excluded women from the membership. A shocking revelation. So what do they do? They formed their own. Ladies National Association for the Repeal of the Contagious Diseases Act, or LNA. Before the end of the year, they were like, fuck you, fuck this. This is insanity. We're not standing for this, and we won't allow you to do this shit to us anymore. Oh, the pure gumption. Yep. They published the, uh, a ladies' manifesto, which stated the acts were discriminatory on the grounds of both sex and class. There was a statement published in the daily news announcing the purpose of the ladies national association and it was even signed by florence nightingale so big deal so she toured britain and like between 19 or 1870 and 18 like 70s and 80s she was touring britain she traveled 3700 miles went to 99 meetings over the course of the year um she actually, when she was going around talking to everybody about this, she called the process surgical or steel rape, the examinations. Mm. Here for it. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I used the term violated, which didn't do it justice. No, full on rape. So although she was able to persuade a ton of people in her audiences, she also faced a lot of opposition. I'm sure you can be. Uh, use your imagination but i can help you um at one point a pimps threw cow dung at her pimps threw cow dung at her while she was speaking um at another the windows of her hotel were smashed and at a third threats were made to burn down the building where she was hosting the meeting she didn't give a fuck she's like all right cool fuck you i'm doing it anyway this is insane um, at the 1870 Colchester Parliamentary by-election, the LNA fielded a candidate fielded a candidate against the Liberal Party candidate Sen- Sir Henry Storks. Why is this important? Because there were only two candidates at the time, a liberal and a conservative. They introduced a new candidate which that forced the conservative to get all the conservative votes where all the liberal votes were going between the two. So they actually changed the trajectory of politics because they had gotten a different person in, even if it wasn't the person they wanted. So um, let's see. During the campaign, she had several local meetings. She was chased by a group group of brothel owners. (laughs) Um, And she said of the conservative party candidate winning the seat uh, it proved to be somewhat of a turning point in the history of our crusade because of storks's loss at the um at the by-election home secretary henry bruce announced a royal commission to examine the situation 
One member of parliament told Butler, and I quote, your manifesto has shaken us very badly in the House of Commons. A leading man in the House remarked to me, we know how to manage any other opposition in the House or the country, but this is very awkward for us. This is the revolt of women. It's quite a new thing. What are we to do with such such an opposition as this? <laughs> I mean, the basis of like clearly we're not seen as equals, right? Like they like we're even when we're these rowdy fighting fairly. <laughs> these rowdy little animals. Oh man. <laughs> so um regardless. The commission's report defended the one-sided nature of the legislation, saying there is no comparison to be made between prostitutes and the men who consort with them. With the one sex of the offense is committed as a matter of gain. With the other, it is an irregular indulgence of a natural impulse. The report accepted the findings that sexual health of men in 18 areas covered by the acts had improved. So basically, they're fighting against it, saying, well, hey, these dudes are are okay. You know, the health of these men are improving because we're taking these women and we're locking them the fuck up. Mm-mm. Mm. That's Mm-mm. a pretty loose argument. Mm-hmm. In relation to the compulsory examinations, the commission was swayed by the descriptions of steel rape and suggested it should be voluntary, not compulsory. Okay. The commission heard significant evidence that many prostitutes were as young as 12 and recommended that the age of consent should be raised from 12 to 14. Our buddy Bruce took no action for, on the recommendations for six months. But when he did... He proposed a new bill. It was awful, and he re- withdrew it shortly after. She took that opportunity to go speak in town meetings. And at one of the meetings, the floor had been sprinkled with cayenne pepper, and it had to be cleared. And then right after that, the opponents set bales of straw on fire in the storeroom below, smoking out the hall. There were two cops appointed to this meeting to keep the peace. And they did fucking nothing about it. Well, they were in on it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, they were the ones doing the genital examinations. Well, or picking the women off the street mm-hmm. or fucking them or whatever. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> through the 70s and 80s, she continued to travel and speak out against the Contagious Diseases Act. Um, in March of uh, 75, Butler formed the British and Continental Federation for the Abolition of Prostitution. They neighbor, later, later renamed it the International Abolitionists Federation. It's an organization that campaigned against the state regulation of prostitution and for the abolition of female slavery and the elevation of public morta- morality in men. So while she was going through all of this other stuff, she formed this next committee to further showcase how imbalanced our society was how men need to do better do fucking better and i feel like it's kind of the same in high schools today while young girls have to cover every inch of their bodies but men are boys are not being told pay attention to how you're being disrespectful like it doesn't make sense right the boys will be boys continues to be a common thread can't um so she was also during her travels, she was able to get involved in the campaign of journalist William Thomas Steed, who was against child prostitution. And eventually that led to the raising to the age of consent from 13 to 16. So remember I mentioned the 13 year old he purchased, he was part of that mission to make sure that voice, that age of consent was raised to 16. Um, so long story short 1886 comes around finally the contagious disease act was repealed hooray on to india because apparently (laughs) fucking india was still being run by the british and the british were still doing the shit in india so she goes to india or I'm, i'm sorry she she didn't go to india she was 
at, at that point she was like 62 years old and she was like way too tired to go anywhere or do anything she thought that um maybe she shouldn't be traveling anymore so she had two americans well, that were supporting her and just a clarification being 62 years old in 1986 i'm sorry 1886 is much much different than being 62 years old today yeah <laughs> traveling to india from wherever she was at seems like it would take too long you no know. i get it for 62 in 1886 you'd actually be comparable to somebody who's like 800 <laughs> 86 but yes truly centuries yeah um so she ended up having two americans that were supporting her they went and visited india on her behalf after she was able to get the um contagious diseases act repealed in 1888 so it was 88 that she was or 89 or whatever that the uh, Indian government repealed it as well. So she sent her two American supporters on her behalf. And what they actually found were there's, they were still hop- hospitals, hospitals um, operating under the contagious diseases act operating on young girls as young as 11 still, even though it was repealed. So she created a community of people who went into India and continued her fight for her, but she was too old in 1890 after she had published hundreds of pamphlets and publications regarding women and society and how they need to be treated better etc um in 1890 her husband passed away from the flu pandemic she paused campaigning at that time and decided to go live with her son and his wife in 1901, she began to withdraw from her public life. She started resigning all of her positions in the campaign organizations, and she started spending a lot more time with her family. In 1903, she moved to Wooler in Northumberland to live near her eldest son, where she lived until December 30th of 1906. She passed away at home and was buried in the nearby village of kirk newton you know this whole time i was wondering how she was maintaining a marriage same very much same but i mean their efforts for equal and righteousness and justice and everything started together at the beginning so I don't know. I mean, he must have been super, super supportive in some way in between her 100 meetings that she'd go to traveling all around the other 265 days (laughs) (laughs) in the year. She would have to make the most of, I suppose. Absolutely. And obviously you have travel days and stuff. I'm just like, seriously, though, she must have been on the road for half the year had to have been and if he was at home with the kids or whatever you know i mean like he was probably they were just writing each other letters every day um okay so just a quick quick couple of things numerous historians most definitely consider her campaign to get rid of the contagious diseases acts to be a huge milestone in the history of female emancipation um according to political historian margaret hamilton the campaign showed that attitudes towards women were changing. Um, feminist and scholar Sheila Jeffries says that Butler is one of the bravest and most imaginative feminists in history. Uh, while Fawcett wrote that she was convinced that Butler should take the rank of the most distinguished English woman of the 19th century. Her unnamed obituist in the Daily News considered that Butler's name, and I quote, will always rank amongst the noblest of the social reformers, the fruit of whose labors is the highest inheritance that we have. She fought with enormous courage and self-sacrifice in a battlefield where she was subjected to the fiercest antagonism. She never faltered in her task, and it was it is to her in supreme that the English statute book owes the removal of one of the greatest blots that ever defaced it. 
her victory marked one of the great stages of progress of women to that equality of treatment is which is the final test of a nation's civilization i would uh that's pretty epic and why don't we hear about her more i don't know i mean well i mean i've been told a couple of books to read about the history of american education and it is appalling and kind of terrifying well, true. We are in America, so maybe it's not as prevalent in our history books through our education process mm-hmm. since she was rooted in the United Kingdom. But I do feel as though the name Josephine Butler is not unfamiliar. However, prior to the story, would I have any clue I mean, she could have, you know, been a theater actress or an opera singer, any of the above things that women were allowed to do back in the day. Yeah. (laughs) And it's just, it's, it's very humbling and it's, no, it's weird because you feel encouraged and you feel uh, inspired. But then at the same time, you're like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Like, you feel horrible at the same time. Right. So quick shout out to wanderwomenproject.com and, of course, the Wikipedes for providing me with all of this wonderful information. I, I fucking breezed over this woman's life. You guys have to look her up to understand truly all of the stuff that she was involved in. For the betterment of women in the UK. It is insane. She was in Ireland. She was in England. She was everywhere. And you, there are definitely remnants of her all over the place. There's um, the blue plaque erected in 2001 by English Heritage at Butler's former residence in Wimbledon. Um, it's a English Heritage plaque showing her name date of birth and death champion of women's rights lived here so at hallmarks where she stayed um she's had colleges named after her she's had other schools named after her libraries everything and And that's why i'm like her name i don't think is unfamiliar no it's not but it it's in america it's a bit lost yeah i don't know if we were in england if we would have known better well if we have any friends across the pond they could tell us i'm sure (laughs) (laughs) oh well thank you for i don't uh, the summary version which is (laughs) chock full so much (laughs) so much um and honestly (laughs) it makes me feel like i'm so lazy (laughs) right I feel like I have no reason to get up and be like, ah, anymore, anymore. No, no, no more do you. You have so many opportunities afforded to you. Thank you to women like Josephine Baker. I'm going to start trying to take life a little easier. (laughs) Knowing that I can walk around the streets of my town without getting pointed at by a plainclothes officer and being told I'm a prostitute so that they can go and fucking rape me with goddamn who knows what. Ugh. We've come a long way, friends. And I really am like, wow. Thank you, Josephine, for fighting the fight so that I can try to work part time. (laughs) Support myself legally. Especially one day, I'd like to not work at all and just vacation. <laughs> right, we're, we're getting there. Supposedly, we'll see. Oh man! Well, I suppose that we could then transition into Atta Girls to make ourselves feel a little bit better. Yeah, I'm in. <laughs> I mean, Atta Girls are things that we're proud of that we've done, or you know, good things that have happened to us, and. Mine is like something that I have done. So maybe I 
won't paint myself as such a lazy bum. Um, so I have been helping out a couple friends of ours. Uh, our one friend is on a consulting project contract in Germany and his wife has to, uh, go into work every day and they have two dogs who are not used to not having somebody at home. COVID dogs. I think they got them before they might've got the second one during COVID. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but around COVID. Yeah. So they're spoiled, you know, Mm -hmm. they're used to having people around. Um, so I've been going over to their house like three times a week, two, three times a week during the middle of the day to take care of the dogs because I, you know, I feel bad for them. I get it. And I feel bad for my friends, AKA the dog parents, because I know what it's like to feel like you have to rush home. Right. And if you get stuck in traffic or there's an accident or whatever, you're just like, ah, damn it. So, um, Anyway, I've been helping them out temporarily because they live like two miles from me. And um, today they left me two bottles of wine and two gift cards and they were set up. So like there was a bottle of wine with a gift card in front of it and then another bottle of wine with another gift card in front of it. And the gift cards said that they were to me and each one was from a different dog. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's so cool and cute and sweet. Yeah. Cause I told, I'm like, you don't need to help me. Like it, he's helped me plenty of times. Like right. before he was married, I mean, he was again, two miles away. So I'm like, come pick up this dead rabbit in my yard. Like oh, come no. help me <laughs> blow these leaves oh. into the street. You know what I mean? So I'm we like, no, like that's what neighbors and a community and stuff are for. Right. right. So they didn't have to do anything, but they did. And it was, it was nice. And very well, I mean, that feels, it feels good to be appreciated. It really yeah. does. At the end of the day, it feels good to like have people acknowledge you for that. I can approve. Yeah. Hell yeah. That's awesome. At a girl doing good things for our friends. <laughs> <laughs> um, my at a girl this week is that, well, I think it might be a collective at a girl because Seth helped me, but we got our uh, garden, our raised garden beds built. And okay. the next step is they fill them up with um, dirt deer tay that we have that we're getting donated. And from. the worms. Yeah. And Jim Juniors. Those, those guys are in the composter now. So those guys are cruising along. And uh, we have uh, soil being donated to us from one of our friends up at the bird store. <laughs> and so things are just coming along quite nicely. None of my plants are dead. Amen. <laughs> We We've been on quite a journey with you with all these gardening yeah. things. I mean, it is a, it's a lot. It's a, yeah. But I love you're, it. you're almost like farming. You're almost farmer Sarah. I know. I'm like two steps away from free bleeding. <laughs> Not really. I was like, oh, that's a line. I didn't think we were crossing. Well, I mean, we're going to the women's <laughs> rights. We might as well just go all away. <laughs> I can bleed all over whatever I want. Fuck you. And my life force. <laughs> Could you imagine if that was the argument? <laughs> Could not. I could not. Ugh. No, we've come so far to have all of the various <laughs> tools mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, amenities for us that I wouldn't want us to regress by not using them. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I like, I don't feel I'm gross, but I know that everybody else's and that's okay I know that's fair <laughs> I think I'd feel gross of oh, you're on your own oh yeah, yeah. that's fair yeah yeah <laughs> I wonder like did humans just like lay down for did women just lay down back in the day and just like bleed for days and then be done with it like did they function how do they function I don't even know Probably like cloth diapers. Well, yeah. I mean, we know the evolution of the tools and stuff like that. Maybe that's one of the ones I'll go into one day is like the evolution of what are they? Sanitary napkins. I guess. 
Yeah, that women's protection as a whole. I don't know. <laughs> okay, moving on. Um, <laughs> if you liked what you heard today, <laughs> good luck. Great review. Subscribe. Thank you. Um, you can submit a ho of history to homeanspodcast at gmail.com or in comments or DMs on Instagram at homeans underscore chronicles. Uh, you can get homeance merch from etsy.com slash shop slash Nicole Bonneville. And we have a closed face group, um, Facebook group. I, I said that all is one word. Wow. Uh, the homeance chronicles, a judgment free zone. If you're into, I don't know, continuing this type of conversation. <laughs> it gets a little dirty. It gets a little dirty. A little something. It's uh, aggressive. So thank you all. Please tell your friends, rate, review, subscribe. It means a lot to us. 